Palmer Bear on the edge of the box. Oh, it's a straight-up screamer! Download our app today and enjoy straight-up screamers this FIFA World Cup with great odds, great promos and same-game multi at Palmer Bear. Gamble responsibly. For gambler's help, call 1-800-858-858. But a champion becomes a legend! McCarty Deaver has won it! Perkins goes in first. What a legend! What a champion! Welcome to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. As always, a great pleasure to have you with us for This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And we celebrate the life today of a man who is multifaceted, but perhaps you know him best as the face of the famous VFA competition. He was the biggest name in the game for so many years. He probably still is. His name is Phil Cleary, and I'm delighted to have him in the studio. Great to be with you, Peter, uh, reminiscing about our commentary days and uh, your travel down from Kyneton, beautiful Kyneton. Yes, so anyway, great to be here, Pete. Yeah, it was uh, a lot of fun and we'll talk about that. What are you doing footy-wise these days? Well, um, I've been at West Coburg for some time because I've got two sons who play football, uh, Rory and Dinny, and um, then I moved from West Coburg and I'm down at Avondale Heights with the legendary Donald McDonald. Mm -hmm. Donald's coaching... And I'm kind of a mentor, and when he's away on AFL duties with North Melbourne, I do the coaching. And I've had two shots at it, back into the into the breach, and we beat uh, Duda Stars the other week. So there you go. I had a victory. I lost to Strathmore the week before, and I loved it, Peter. It was so nice to get out there coaching again, being in the huddle, talking to players, getting excited. It was great. Did the old hot gospeling come back naturally? <laughs> it's funny, you know. No. Because the whole landscape's changed. I think I'm still a, a storyteller, and I still would like to think I can create pictures for players. That was part of, I think, um, what I loved about coaching in the old days. But not so fiery now. I, I think we realise the game's changed, and the way you deal with young men is different from the way you might have dealt with young men before. But I must say, I reckon in the old game when I was coaching successfully at Coburg, and I, and I did have a lot of success, I think um, I still was pretty interpersonal, and I, and I was, I think I had plenty of love, even though people might say, oh, Phil was a hard sort of person. Um, but I think I still understood how to cuddle men, cuddle young blokes, you know, metaphorically, to make them play well, and I'm still into that. I still think you've got to engage people around what they're good at and make them feel good about their football. So I still love that challenge, Peter. From a, a structural point of view, we see that the game at the top level is different now because of the 666 rule, although that's only at the stoppages. Mm. But it has changed a lot and evolved over the years. Has that trickled down to the suburban leagues and to the country leagues, do you feel? Well, I think the games are played pretty much the same, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I, there's lots about it, Peter, I don't like. I, I think the congestion is unattractive. You know, I, I liked that old game where it was open and now it's a massive stoppage count and, you know what, a midfield player could get 25 possessions and have 11 tackles. Well, what sort of tackles are they? It's mm. all in tight grappling with the bloody football, you know. I like it to be more open. You want people to catch the football and sometimes as you move down the ranks and people aren't as skilled, it can actually detract from the game. How are your boys going? Are they... Uh 
an example of the apple not falling far from the tree? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Well, it's they're, they're both over six foot two, and I'm, I was about one seventy six, I think, centimeters. My oldest boy Rory has uh, he had played two games at Coburg, and he he played uh, he's kicked a few goals and played in a premiership at West Coburg. He's going well, but my younger boy Dinny at twenty was training at Coburg. He strained his Liz Frank last year in at Keeler. And he finished um, second in West Coburg's Best and Fairest and um, polled well in the competition voting. He only played about 12 full games for the year. And so I think he's still a chance to, to maybe go up the ranks and make VFL and who knows where. He, he's, a, he's a very powerful midfield runner, you know, and um, he's pretty tough. <laughs> One thing we know about you is uh, we know your passion for football. That's been evident in your career when you were playing and commentating and coaching. But you are, apart from that, there are a lot of strings to your bow. Politically, how are you involved these days? Oh, well, I suppose I'm still a, a, a commentator out there in uh, media, the media world, Peter. Uh, this week, for example, I've been talking about John Setka. Mm. John Setka's alleged remarks uh, are about allegedly making references to Rosie Batty, who's a colleague of mine and a campaigner like like I am. John Setka pleading guilty to harassment charges in relation to a woman. Uh, John Setka's role in the anti-violence campaign, has he done it harm? Should he continue to hold his position? It's interesting to be out there um, having had a footy life and a political life and still engaged in those sort of questions. And the anti-violence theme, of course, as you know, Dates way back. My sister murdered uh, 32 years ago, and we have the Vicky Cleary Day. I'm still out there talking. I'm 66, and I've still got platforms. So it's sort of good to be able to commentate on on big social questions. The benefits, Phil, of women now playing football are probably twofold in the fact that they have a career path, which they never had before. They can aspire to play at the top level. But there's also the integration, the cross-pollination that goes on, if you like, between the men and the women. And they're not two separate groups anymore. They can almost gel as one group inside a football club. Well, it's fantastic, Peter. And I've been out talking about this question at different places around the anti-violence, gender equality question. I was up at Wangaratta recently talking about it. And you know, one of the great possibilities in local footy clubs now is that men and women can share ideas together. And you could be a footy coach coaching, uh, say, a boys team. And I did this at West Coburg. So I'd be coaching 16s or 18s. And I'd have women working with me, like collecting the data, doing the stats. I had a woman, Tracy, with me. And it was great, Pete. You know, you could turn to the turn to Tracy at three-quarter time. She'd have the board up with the stats. And I've used this as a simple example of boys seeing a woman intimately engaged in the science of the game. And, you know, what do players care about? Stats. Mm. So you have women there. Now, women coaching, and I've often said at gatherings like that, women coaches talking to male coaches. They should be sharing ideas. And at local country footy clubs, you know, great places to do it because it's a fairly homogenous kind of setting. So it's been interesting also. It's changed the way men are looking at women uh, women playing football and having to tackle, men are saying, oh, there's a different dimension to women. Oh, women don't just have to be a model looking like a model, a slender model. They can have wider hips and be playing football, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's changing the way men are looking at the place of women in the world. Kenny Callender, the great racing man, was a guest on my program a few weeks ago and he talked about coming down and going to the footy one day and he didn't go to the AFL. Yeah. He went to the VFL at Port. 
Well, you're a racing man. You know that. Well, Saturday, people did the footy and they did the races, didn't they? And on Sunday, they'd go to the VFA. And, of course, the the SP bookies. They were everywhere in the old VFA. They had an SP uh, SP bookie at uh, Port Melbourne. They had it at Paran. Rupert Steele was at Paran, wasn't he? Mm, Famous. And they were all punting on it. And when we had Alan Tripp at Coburg in the late 80s, and Alan is famous, you know, Vanuatu stuff, and... uh, Alan was always betting, and Tony Hanabry, they always had a book running, Peter. There was plenty of cash flowing, and I think when, when we lost, I think, the 86 grand final, I remember going back to the club rooms, and Alan said, what happened? I said, well, I got ordered off, Alan. That didn't know. He said, yeah, but why did we lose? And I, I think it dawned on me later, someone told me, he had a big quid on the game, <laughs> and he lost plenty. We've got a break coming up, but politically, uh, a man that you were synonymous with because you actually had his seat... Uh, left us not long ago, and that was uh, Robert James Lee Hawke. What are your memories of him? Oh, great times. You know, he was at the 88 grand final. It was just fantastic. He came into the rooms before the game. And you know, Peter, I'd lost, we'd lost, we'd lost our sister and mum and dad lost their daughter in in August 1987. So there we were a year later at, at Windy Hill for the big grand final. And before the game, I spoke to the players in the Essendon rooms and Hawke had come in. So he's just over to my left, as I recall. And I said to the players something like, well, you know, we can't, uh, we, we, we can't bring Vicky back and, and the pain will endure. But, you know, if we win today, it will certainly ease some of that pain for my family. And so it would be great to win. I didn't, allow, didn't go on for too long about it, but Hawke was there and listening. Anyway, we went on and we won the premiership that day at Windy Hill. It was a fantastic game. We played so well. He came back into the rooms after the game. He just was there with everyone. I mean, you think today, would a, would a politician, a prime minister, go into the Essendon rooms there with hundreds of blokes with beer and I, I laugh and say spumante because I don't think we were champagne drinkers, <laughs> and, uh, and hold the cup up with me as he did, and he did. He held it up and we laughed and he whispered in my ear. He said, you know, Phil, the way you spoke to the players before the game was so impressive, we should pre-select you for the Labor Party. And bingo, what I won his seat, you know, like three, three, three year, four years later, and we had great conversation. And uh, and I was, I, I keep, I say to people all the time, what was special about Hawkers? He had that great capacity to mix with people, Peter. Yeah, he was you every know. man, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was. You couldn't imagine Paul Keating doing it. You couldn't, you know, John Howard liked his sport and stuff, and and Turnbull, etc., etc., etc. But um, Hawk was so. At ease with it. Not at ease. He loved it. Mm. He just loved it. Holding the cup up, skylarking, you know. It was really good. When he passed away a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned um, that I interviewed him a few times at the races. Yeah. And and the one thing that he would do when he came up at Flemington, it was not the Prime Minister coming up, you know, swanning around. He had the form guide with him and he had all these squiggles over the form guide and he'd talk about the form before we went to air. He just loved it. Well, do you know... That when he was at Coburg, of course, he met Alan Tripp and all Alan Tripp's mates, you know, they're all into the racing. And he used to ring Peter Bartholomew to get tips. Mm. So he was he was making use of Peter Bartholomew's uh, 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 racing knowledge. He was dead serious about it, about setting his book right, you know. <laughs> 
While we're talking about politics, before we take a break, did you enjoy your time as the member for Wills? There were so many things. There was the court case that happened. Yeah. So it was, in lots of ways, it was a difficult time. But was yeah. it was it a, a beneficial time for you or did it leave you with a different view of politics from the inside rather than the outside? Oh, look, I, I'd have to say I, I loved the experience. It was really exciting. But it was a bit like winning a premiership, Peter. The best time was on election night, you know, when the votes come in. Oh, and I was standing in the Coburg rooms. We did it at the Coburg Football Club. So when the votes came in and uh, it was, we realised we'd won in April 1992, it was like winning the premiership again. You know, it was just that exciting. But I did – I had lots of great moments through politics. And, and look, you might say they're, they're the accoutrements or the perks of the game – but you'd go on delegations occasionally and those delegations were brilliant, you know, and I met amazing people. And, do you know, like I met Jerry Adams on the Falls Road in 1994. Like Jerry Adams, mm. like he's a pretty famous figure in the Irish Republican movement and that was just before the peace process that's still alive in in Northern Ireland. And uh, that was remarkable. And because of having been in politics and giving you a degree of status, you know, I met Julian Assange a couple of years ago in the Ecuadorian embassy, and you get to meet lots of people because of politics. Um, I came away thinking, oh, you know, some disparaging thoughts about the system, but more about the tribalism of it. I didn't think it was a free-spirited enough. And you and I could mix in life. If we, weren't, if we were standing down the bar or going anywhere and talking to someone, we'd want them to just tell us what they actually think. The problem in politics, people don't tell you what they think. They tell you what the party thinks. Mm. That's frustrating. It's not normal. I wish we had more than an hour. We're going to take our first break. I want to devote the next break to your football life, and then perhaps we might talk about the days with the ABC and some of the characters yeah. that you called with, some very talented people and one yes. bloke who wasn't all that talented but just managed to <laughs> meander through for a few years. We'll talk about that when we come back on the other side of the break. Phil Cleary is my guest. Great to have him along on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. More with Phil after the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. What a pleasure it is to have Phil Cleary as my guest on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Right, oh, enough of all that political nonsense. Yes. Let's talk footy. Where did you fall in love with the game? I grew up in North Coburg, 26 Shawgrove, just north of Pentridge Prison. As a kid, we used to belt plastic footballs around, you know, and you kick them up through the power lines. So we're always playing. And those were the days, you know, I'm 66. So, you know, we're talking born in 52. So the late 50s and 60s, you kick them footballs around. And I just sort of liked football. And we, we had the Merry Creek down to the east. Merry Creek ran through there. The plains of the Merry Creek. There was Farmer Mackay had quite an acreage there. So there was an old farm. We used to go down. And, isn't that amazing? You know, yeah. a farm when in your, well, like when you're about 10, he'd bring his cows down, but we'd kick in the mud, kick the ball around and the mudlarks had come down and uh, attack you because they, they, they were breeding. I tend, I won all the best and fairest in all my footy years, you know, at school, at St. Joseph's and then under 15 and under 17. And I won a best and fairest at under 17. I beat David Dixon for the best and fairest, and he went on to play in Carlton's yeah. 1972 Premiership. 
and then I won the under 18s. I then went, I went to university and I was kind of almost going to drop out of footy and I went, played amateur football at Coburg. I kicked a lot of goals there and I won the best and fairest there and then I went to Coburg, VFA. Now, I wasn't the greatest kick, but I suppose people said I had speed and I was pretty strong and super fit. I always had a very good engine, as they, they say these days, so I could run. And I tended to outrun players. And I, whilst I wasn't a great kick, I tended to kick a lot of goals. Now, I don't know. I just kicked a lot of goals. You know, at the Coburg Amateurs, I kicked 150 in, in about 50 games. I was averaging about three a game. When I first went to Coburg, ah, you know, 1975, coached by the great John Dugdale, mm. legendary kangaroo, you yeah. know. And I, I broke my arm in a game at Coburg. And it's very funny, Pete, you know. I went up into the rooms after the game and it was I broke it at about the 27-minute uh, mark. A bloke called uh, Ivan Russell. Ivan Russell thick said, I reckon he got me with his leg. Broke the bone, the forearm here, and the trainer upstairs has got the cigarette in his mouth as he's rubbing my arm to tell me, it's not breaking, Phil. No, it's okay. It's just a sprain. I was driving a, an old FB Holden and, you know, the handbrake she had to pull yeah. out. When I pulled the handbrake out, I thought... Sheesh, that's not broken. It's a very serious strain. Anyway, it was a steel plate had to be put in it. So that was my my start to VFA football. And my first game that year, 75 at Williamstown, I get taken off midway through the last quarter. You know, in those days, wasn't rotations. You'd say that you just got replaced by the 19th and 20th man. And I walked around the boundary and I remember a bloke stuck his head. He was drinking a, 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 a stubby and I reckon it was a Footscray player. And I've always said, and he can maybe tell us one day, was it Gordon Casey? Mm. Was it you, Gordon? You remember Gordon Casey? I do. Number yeah. 10, I think he yes. was. Yes. So, Gordon, when you hear this, I want to, you to tell me whether it was you who said, not good enough, number 18. That was my first game at Willie, 1975, and I went on to play 205. <laughs> well, I reckon you probably proved you were good enough. I think so. And you were playing in a competition where you not only had to be good, but you had to be tough because yeah, it was a tough competition. It was, Peter. It's funny, and you look back and think, you know, what was bad about it? Well, there were just some blokes who were not really that admirable. Like, some of the things that happened, you know, were awful. Like, you, the 19, I started in 75, and you go to 1976, and you'll remember this well, that grand final at the Junction Oval, mm. 30,000 people, Dandenong and Port Melbourne, and Alan Harper, King Hits Fred Cook, down at the northern end of the Junction Oval, now, Alan seemed a decent bloke. I've met him since, you know. So let's say Alan, Alan's not going to deny that he did that, but boy, did he hurt Fred Cook, you know, like God Almighty. And then he whacked Norm Brown. And then Buster Harland whacked him. And then, and then uh, George Allen up the other end whacked Paddy Flaherty. Little Paddy, you know, who wouldn't hurt a flea. And George, you know, with, when his mouth was open and there were no teeth and he looked at it and said, get a kick and I'll kill you. You know, he went, oh, dear, that's pretty scary. So that, that, some of that stuff was awful, really. But, you know, Fred Cook tells the stories. He laughs about being in the rooms after, after Harper had hit him. And um, Normie Goss, the legendary president of Port Melbourne, whose sons played football, he said to him, what's wrong with you? And Fred says, oh, look look at me mouth, will you? And his mouth, he's cut to pieces. And Normie Goss says, you don't play footy with your mouth or your head. You know, the typical. <laughs> and Fred says, they stitched me up. And he said, they stitched me up with a needle. It looked like they were stitching up a hay bag. Mm. 
God almighty. And Fred, you know, what a player. So, you know, it's funny, Pete, when you think about how dirty the game was at times and how did we tolerate that? And yet in a blink of an eye, we changed it. Well, it was almost encouraged, wasn't it, in it those was. days? Because it was the difference of the the big oh. competition, the oh. VFL, as it yeah. was, compared to the VFA. And the expectation was, if you went to the footy on the Sunday, yeah. you were going to see a decent blue. Oh, yeah. And there were some blokes running around who, God, you, you just couldn't trust, you know. You turn your back on some blokes, and it was really scary. You mm. know, like, oh, just, you, you just had to worry about that. Uh, and some of it, you, then so you think, yeah, well, you're right, to go to your point, why was it promoted? You know, mm. it was the era. Like, it's kind of interesting, and I, I've, I've wondered about this and talked to people about it and haven't come to a conclusion you know, it's um, the 70s. It follows the Vietnam War. So, you know, Australia's got a sense of this violence, you know, this this horrible war not far away and were men affected by that. But at the same time, the peace movement's on the march, pacifism, free love. So there's sort of these all these contradictory forces at work. And yet you go to the footy field and, boy, it was not a good place. And yet now you go down to local footy and no one wants anyone hurt. Mm. You know, you're really keen. And I worry. It's funny, Pete. I, I look at the game, the local game, and, and I see kids getting hurt. And you see it. We had a boy concussed last week, and I, I'm, I'm mortified, you know. I mean, a senior player, he's only 21, and uh, I had to deal with him too and see, you know, close quarters what the, how that concussion affected him. Could hardly say my name. Yeah. Because and I'm thinking it's serious business, you know. In the days when you were playing, if oh. you were concussed and you didn't go oh. back on, you were classified as weak, oh. and you would have oh. got a few concussions, and you well, probably I, caused a few over the years well, as well. I was lucky, I reckon. I'm hoping it's true that I didn't. I did get in around about seventy seven, seventy eight. Barry Nolan, who played for Brunswick, and Barry, Barry, a terrific player and a boxer. He did belt me a big left and right, and, it's, and I've met him in recent times, and you know, sadly, Barry is suffering with Parkinson's. You know, Barry's the most wonderful person. But I remember that when he hit me, he dropped me, and I went back onto the ground, and I remember my – I still vividly remember this, Peter. My feet were like I was, like I was sliding on ice, and I was glazed, you know, mm. my eyes. And I, rec- I clearly had a form of – low-end low concussion, and today I would not have gone back out onto that ground, no question about it. So, But there were players who stayed on in those days, and now big discussion about concussion. Yeah, and really, the after effects of oh, it. Oh, God, serious. And we've got a – it's one of the big problems of the game, I think, too. You know, we've got to protect players, and the congested nature of the game is producing too many concussions. And you asked me about – Community football, it's a problem there too. Mm. We've talked about some of the bad aspects of the, the VFA oh, yes. and, the, and the brutality yeah. of it, but there were so many good things about that competition. <laughs> oh, you, you'd go there, you might be at Port and there might be 10,000 there, or you oh, go to Kramer Street, and, yeah. and the atmosphere at those games, when it was full, was something to behold because you use the word tribal a lot with football. Yeah. The VFA <sighs> was tribal. I'm glad you put it that way, Pete, and I know you loved it, and I know you, you understood it, and you, you went to port, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Well, I said so many times in the past, and people think, oh, I've heard Phil say this before, but let me repeat it. You'd go to Port Melbourne, and you'd smell the soap factory. Yeah. And, you, and I remember when I first went there, Pete, I thought, what is that smell? It was I bloody awful, was the, too. I know I thought it was something in the soil. I <laughs> thought it was some, some fertiliser, and I only discovered years later... It was the soap factory. Yeah. 
and the form of abuse was distinctive and the crowd was distinctive. And then when you went to Dandy, it was different again. The, the mist coming off the mountains, the north-south, the wind, the northerly breeze, Frosty Miller catching big marks and kicking torpedo punts and Paddy Flaherty banging goals through. And the crowd there was different. And the drive all the way down Prince's Highway, you know, when you had an old car, these were the days when we drove crappy old cars yeah. and you'd go to Paran, it was different. And then you went to Preston and there was the, the Preston market over the way and the smell was different. And the train went past the Kramer Street. Everywhere you went, it was distinctive. The crowds were great. And you know, it's so funny. I'll bump into people these days and I'll go, oh, Phil Cleary, I used to call you a dirty mongrel when I was down at Port, but gee, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Give us the best moment in your VFA career, of both as a player and a coach. Well, sometimes you've got to be a bit personal and individualistic about it. I hope someone out there can tell me they've got the vision. But Peter, in 1977, we played Danny Nong at Coburg in the TV game. Danny Nong, sorry, 76. Danny Nong go on to play in the grand final. Danny Nong's got um, Frosty Miller, Paddy Flaherty. They got Eddie Milai. Mm. Now, for people who don't know, Eddie was big. He had bushy eyebrows. He was elegant. People loved him. He was tough. He, I think he sold shirts, so he was very dapper sort of man off the field, wasn't he? You've yeah, come across he was. It. He was. Anyway, Number 21. Yes. And, and and these were the days when it wasn't so politically correct. And, and I got three goals to quarter, three-quarter time. I've kicked three. And I'm going all right. And big... Big uh, Eddie comes past, he says, as for you, you little wog, you won't get a kick in the last quarter. <laughs> I never remember Eddie. I still laugh about it. Anyway, in the last quarter, Pete, I've banged through four big ones. Can you imagine when I've got the fourth? How am I travelling, Eddie? Then the fifth, not too bad for a little wog. Then the sixth, this little wog can play. Then the seventh, this little wog's the best wog playing football in Australia. So... That that was one day that I genuinely was excited about myself, and I went out uh, after that, and people would come up to me and say, "Oh, geez, Phil saw you kick seven on the tally," and I thought, "How big was I? Mm. How special was I?" But then, you know, playing in a premiership was that was pretty amazing, and the seventy nine flag, you know, like twenty thousand people at the junction, and a bloke called Fisher kicks the goal to put us in front. Now. Anyone out there, go and look at the 79 VFA Grand Final on YouTube. And, Peter, you have a look at it if you remember it. And tell me if it's not the most remarkable goal. You'll get a chance sometime to have a discussion around this and say, Phil Cleary reckon, and I've had a look, and here's my opinion. David Fisher takes the ball in the middle of the ground. Do you know, talk about press-up, there's not a single player between him and the southern end of the Junction Oval. He kicks the ball to him out in front of himself, going south to himself. He runs... The ball bounces, he picks it up, he kicks a goal. Mm. Like, you'll see it on YouTube. If I'm lying, someone will tell me. So that was great. And then oh, the premierships, coaching back-to-back 88-89 was absolute exhilaration, just exhilaration. And to, to win the flag, and I must say, winning the flag in 88 was beautiful because we'd had a tough time. We'd lost Vicky. And I remember being with my mum, my mum in that grand final in 88, and Ken Ingram, a player, reminds me, when I got up on the, on the uh, dais or podium, and I said, I must have said, where's mum? I looked out to see if support. I said, where's mum? Mm. And I never forgot that. And, 
and then cuddling mum in 89 after we'd won again. I think we're out on the ground and I've got a photo of that with my daughters with me. So, And then the partying afterwards. Grand finals are a great excuse for a party. Premierships. What's, what's better? Is it better to win one as a player or is it better to be in charge of the group and win one as a coach? I reckon in the end it was the coaching yeah, because – and you go to reunions, it's just marvellous. We still meet about – you know, it's 30 years now, and we'll celebrate this year, 30 years. And I think my relationship with those players, it's so important to have been the person to have brought great joy and importance to their lives, and they, of course, brought something so special to my life. And I love them for it, you know, mm. and I – but it's funny, I was watching – the boy Wiedemann uh, playing for Melbourne the other day and thinking, yeah, and I coached his dad and I met his grandfather as well, Murray, the legend of you, a Collingwood yeah. man, the legendary Murray Wiedemann who used to come to Cobick. So I look at that and I think, God, the interconnections in football, they're just, they're so alluring and so uplifting, you know, the Wiedemann clan. And uh, that was all made special by premierships. And the last point I'd say there is it's premierships that make you want to go to reunions. Yeah. And we're lucky. I'm lucky. I had it as a player and as a coach. So tick the boxes, thankfully. I wish we had more time to talk about your playing and coaching days. But when we come back on the other side of the break, a lot of people know you. They might not have seen you play, but they saw you on television and they saw you (laughs) presenting the VFA and the VFL competition. And we'll talk about some of those moments when we come back on the other side of the break with Phil Cleary on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. What a great pleasure it is to have Phil Cleary as we reminisce about football, politics and all sorts of things. And Phil, we're now going to reminisce about ABC television and your role in the coverage of the VFA and VFL. How did you transition from playing and coaching to being the TV icon that you became? <laughs> Very kind of you, Peter. Very <laughs> kind of you to throw that word in. Look, uh, I was a known person associated with the VFA. The ABC took on the call. Uh, uh, but uh, I should add, I'd worked with uh, Channel 10 prior mm. to 87. I did the 85 and uh, 85 grand final. So anyway, um, ABC takes it on and uh, I'm there a special comments person and we had Peter G and eventually Ross Booth and we just had a, a marvellous, a wonderful time. And you're just talking off air about your calling the Olympics with Peter G. Yeah. One of the great people, one of the great callers. And I was, pl- I was still coaching and doing special comments and sort of learning the ropes of commentary, but it was a terrific team. And Peter G's call of the 1990 grand final was just stunning. I mean, it was all set up was for it. It had the right ingredients. Barry Round, you know, Barry Round from the South Melbourne days and Sydney days, and there he is. He hasn't had a premiership, and he's, he's in the 86 grand final premiership with Willie, and then he captain coached them in 1990. Bill Swan kicks the goal down at the school end to put him in front. Like uh, Their goal's behind. Springvale's got the game won, coached by Phil Malin. Who'd have believed they could lose? And they go on and win it. And Peter said things, something to the effect of the oldest man in the oldest game – and on he went, and it was just he captured it. And you as a broadcaster would appreciate it, Peter, you know, when sometimes you get those words just right, mm. and, and he did. And I always thought 
It's one of the greatest calls. And then we did the 94 Premiership too. And, and I suppose you've got to look at the sentimental context. 94, Trevor Barker, you know, again, no success with Premierships. Then he takes Sandy to two Premierships. And the 94 at Victoria Park, they're done. Box mm. got them. And they fight back. And I think Ross Booth made a beautiful call of uh, Steve Amy at goal down at the grandstand end. It was just the way he described it. And then I chimed in with something and it was great. And uh, and I remember, I think I said something to Kekka like, the gods are speaking to us, Kekka, because the VFA was about to be um, displaced by VFL. And Kekka sort of scoffed, oh, I don't know about that, you know. <laughs> but I was dreaming of it. And... Uh, we had some wonderful times, and it followed on with yourself, you know, our times in, in that comp. And I, I think it's, it's funny, I go to places and people will talk about our calling. You know, they remember the early days, but you and me and Roscoe, and they always talk about Roscoe, uh, and how much they've loved it. Mm. And we had a great time. We did. We did. Tell us something about Kekka, working with him. Oh, that would have Kekka. been something. Shouldn't have – how could I avoid Kekka? Ah, oh, look, it was funny, Peter. And, I mean, Kekka was the master of mixed metaphors. In the early days, geez, kicked on, hasn't he? He's a yeah. master of language now, but <laughs> he was so funny to work with. You know, those are the days when people used to smoke. So you'd be, <laughs> you'd have a smoke and you'd be sticking it in a can of Coke. Yeah. And I think one day the, the butt got stuck in the live Coke and Kekka put it up to his mouth and went, God, I want a cigarette in this, you know. And he'd be outside the box um, with his transistor to his ear, listening to the races on yeah. a Saturday. And then you'd say, you punting, because everyone would say Kekka was a bad punter or a big punter. And he'd say, oh, no, a mate of mine's got a horse running. I'm just checking to see how it goes. And then, then he'd bite you for 50 bucks at the end of it. But um, <laughs> And uh, uh, he was just, he was classic. He was just larger than life, you know. Kekker is larger than life. When you look at his career. We did fun. have fun. I came <laughs> along in uh, 2003. The first game I did was at QEO at Bendigo. Um, and it was yeah. after Dave Lennon had been calling yeah. for, I think, the first six or seven weeks. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it I didn't work out. I don't think it worked out quite <laughs> as well as they had hoped. Ah. So Alan Pridmore, who was the executive producer, gave me a ring and said, can you come along? And so I drove to Bendigo that day. And driving to Bendigo that day, now I've not told anyone this, apart from my beloved, but I reckon that's the reason that I now live in the country, because driving to Bendigo that day was probably about late May. Yeah. The smell of people burning leaves, that yeah. beautiful smell. Yeah. And I copped that on the drive, and I thought, I could live in the country, and now I do. So that journey was part of the reason for my journey away from the city. And, and we, we, had, we had a good 10 years, didn't we? 11, 11, yeah, 11, 11 seasons. 11 seasons. And you, you just think wonderful stuff being out at the grounds and uh, having a lark and me being in the down And then I went down on the ground and changed. I'd been up in the box for years and I went down on the ground and I got to love being on the ground. Mm. It was a great insight and a real transformation for me and gave me a, uh, a better understanding of how coaching was working. And I felt I learned more about the game by being there. There are two things that I want to bring up. And yeah. one of them is not the call of the game, but the journey to call the game sometimes in that little mini bus oh, that yeah. we used to have, and we'd go yeah. to Ballarat and Bendigo together, and David Reese jones might be there, yeah. and we might have a little refreshment on the way back. <laughs> um, some of those conversations, if we could have recorded those, 
would make for some very entertaining radio, but unfortunately the lawyers would need to be on speed dial. Yeah, I have the capacity to defame people. Yeah, I've been just a defamation in a book, but in the private I like to just get a bit passionate about the world, you know, in good in good, in good, good company. And we did have a laugh, didn't we? We'd, yes. we'd uh, take... Uh, take the pickaxe out to um, some of the big institutions in the world, like the AFL and other bodies. And yeah, I mean, do you remember the day on the way back from Ballarat where it was my turn to buy the slab? We stopped at that little pub on the left-hand side on the way out of Ballarat, and I thought, well, I'll just buy the slab and then I'll take the rest of it home. And Reese was sitting up the back. I think there were about two left by the time we got home. <laughs> Uh, do you watch the VFL these days? I don't have. I don't as much because I'm. I'm as I say. I'm doing footy with uh, Avondale Heights now, and I did some with West Coburg, and uh, so I don't. I don't sort of have as much time on a Saturday, and and otherwise I'm sort of not around as much. And it was a great love affair, but um, and the VFL's changed, and I, I still care about Coburg and the and the standalone clubs, and but I I, I just think we. It disappoints me that it's not called the VFA. What's your viewpoint on the recent argument about whether the VFA premierships, as they mm. were, should be included in VFL stroke AFL history? Well, I went public on it. I, I don't mind if a club like Geelong wants to say we've got X number of VFA clubs. Well, they, they win about eight, didn't they? I Something think. like that, yeah. VFA premierships alongside our VFL and AFL. I don't have a problem with that. And Collingwood can say they've got one VFA premiership, That's which annoys Eddie, of course, because Geelong will trump them. But you, you can't say that that competition is anything but the VFA. That's what it was. It was the VFA and the VFL broke away. You can't rewrite history like that. And I think that's disrespectful. And I think uh, Mr Carter down there at Geelong's got it wrong. We're just about out of time, but uh, there are still a few things that I want to check yeah. in with you before we finish our chat. Phil Cleary has been my guest. Hope you're enjoying it on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back to wrap things up with Phil on the other side of the break. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Welcome back to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Our final segment with Phil Cleary on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. And uh, you can hear the full version of this on uh, the podcast if you just Google at your sport life, uh, you'll be able to pick up the whole conversation because obviously with a couple of old mates sitting here, we've gone over time, which is very unusual for me, Phil, as you would know. Um, speaking of podcast, you were the one who put me onto podcast. You you dabbled in this a long time ago before anyone else did, I reckon. Yeah, well, I was working at the Electrical Trades Union in communications. I was the communications manager, and it had come across my path. I mean, people, I hadn't uh, uh, invented the idea. I mean, other people had put it to me that podcasts were taking off, and uh, I became interested in it. I, I haven't followed it through, but I am I am exploring the idea of doing my own podcasting because I think, you know, there's plenty of stories to tell and why not put it out there? People are interested in podcasts, podcasts uh, but putting it, putting a, a, a story uh, to their ear from a, some sort of device and so it's worth exploring. We've touched on many aspects of your life. Speaking about putting stories out there, you've written three books. You got another one in you? Well, I have actually. I've written, and I've got a. Well, I tell you what, I am working on too. Peter is a story called the Brunswick Boys, which is about a group of men who go to war in 1941. 
There's five Brunswick boys near Hoffman Brickworks. One of them's my grandfather and his brother. Five men. Three of them become POWs. One becomes a hero at Al Alamein in 1942-43, I think it is, a bloke called Jackie O'Brien. He was a champion boxer. He goes out at Al Alamein as a 19-year-old under Rommel's bombardment, and he's a stretcher-bearer, and he's decorated with the Distinguished Conduct Medal. But he goes straight into alcoholism, post-traumatic stress, he suffers from epilepsy after the war. He's dead at 44. My grandfather dead at 49, my mum's dad, from dies choking, uh, choking on a piece of meat. And their other mate gets run over by the Brunswick train alongside Brunswick Baths. Uh, Michael Peggy Parlin, a tough man. He's dead at 47, 49, 47, 44, all dead. One of them survives, and the other bloke, Roy Dorian, gets killed fighting the Japanese after a miraculous escape from Greece via the island of Crete. And then he gets sent to Japan, and he stands on a landmine. He's dead at 33. So I've been doing this as a documentary, and I've been to Greece and Crete, and I'm hoping to get funding and, and get that up and up and going, you know, but it's just a remarkable story. And on the books, I might turn it into a book, but I'm working on a book called um, what Price a Sister's Life, which revisits my sister's story and other stories I've researched right through to the campaign, where, we're at, where we are now in the campaigns to stop violence against women. So a few little things happening, yeah. That story you were telling, if you put that in as a fictional story, people would probably say it might be pushing the envelope a bit. It's yeah. a bit too far-fetched, but it's real life. Well, it is, Peter. And, you know, when you think that people will understand this, we're talking about VFA footy in the, uh, in the old days. Think of this, Brunswick had its football team and there were these young blokes who lived in Brunswick, followed the Brunswick Footy Club. They they endured the depression of the 1930s, you know. They, these are tough, hard men and here they are, they go to war and when they come back, they descend into that alcoholism. But one of them, Jackie O'Brien's story comes to me because of my dad, my dad played football with a local amateur team in Brunswick. And who do you reckon the first aid man was? Jackie O'Brien. Mm. And why would you be surprised, Peter? He's a stretcher bearer at Al Alamein. What's he going to do at a footy club? He's the first aid man. And they all know him, but he's also become an al- he's also an alcoholic. So a sad story. He'd been a champion boxer. His story, I've been reading, following him, and I'm thinking, God, can you believe it? Mm. What sort of bloke was he? And young men, we look at the draft, 18, 19. This bloke is a is a, a distinguished conduct medal recipient at Al Alamein as a 19-year-old under Rommel's bombardment. Boy, what a story. So I want to bring it to life, and it's it's fascinating. The, the last bit is the Crete part of it. Uh, uh, Roy Dorian and his three mates jump in a little boat. They row for 12 hours across the sea from a place called Svakia to an island of Gavdos. They walk four hours across Gavdos. They find an invasion barge driven by a big bloke, skippered by a big bloke from Western Australia called Harry Richards, over six foot. You should see him in the photo. He was big. Jeez, he could play football, I'm sure. And then they go out to sea to get to Egypt. They run out of petrol. They, they rig up blankets uh, into sails, and they arrive after nine days. Mm. Unbelievable story. And, and I, I've, you know, I've come across this. And then, of course, Roy Dorian comes back to Australia, goes to fight the Japanese, and what happens? Stands on a landmine. Yeah. Like, can you believe it? 
last question. When we were calling the VFA, a VF, there I go, yeah. VFL together, if Collingham played on a Friday night and got beaten, I just waited for you to come into the box the next day and go, ah, oh, Collingham are not that good, are they? <laughs> so I just want to ask the question, how do you think your blues are going at the moment, Phil? Hey, and what about the fact that David Teague, we had him in yes, the VFL, didn't we, with we Northern did. Blues, and he took them to two grand finals, as I recall, and were beaten by uh, uh, Jared Fitzgerald. Yeah. So, and he's a good type. He was very good in the broadcast. Yeah, Carlton struggling, really struggling. Uh, yeah, Carlton, very funny. You know, Carlton Collingwood, very quick one. I got married in uh, on grand final day, 1979. How is Chris? Very good. That wasn't Chris, that was my first wife. Oh, right, eh? I got married in Grandfather Day, 1979. My parents went to the game. Carlton beat, oh, Collingwood. Uh, we I had, don't recall that. We had our reception at the Windsor in town. And where do you reckon Collingwood's reception was? <laughs> the Windsor. So where did I meet the Collingwood blokes? In the urinal. And how was Ray Byrne travelling that night? Not so good. He actually wanted to have his confession uh, heard by the local Jesuit priest who was in our gathering. So we spent the night sharing stories with the Collingwood players, my wedding night. I'll tell you the, the other story. The marriage didn't last, and I'm now with Chris. Right. <laughs> the other story about Ray Byrne. Ray Byrne is famous for a gift that he gave to Kevin Bartlett one day. Are you aware of this? Oh, go on. Uh, he went out. He was playing on Kevin Bartlett one day, and he pulled a comb out of his sock but the comb had no teeth in it. <laughs> and so he presented that to Kevin, to Kevin Bartlett. Bartlett. Yeah. Very good. Uh, we could do another hour, but unfortunately we're out of time. Uh, the last hour has made me realise what a good time we had for yeah, 11 years. Did. It was fun. It and was it's been fun. great to have you in and to reminisce about all of the facets of your great life. Thanks, Peter. It's been lovely to catch you and talk. Good on you. Phil Cleary joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We'll be back same time next week with another great of Australian sport. I hope you can join us then. You're listening to This Is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now.